Have you been exploring what is the experience of stickiness when there's no, nothing else, no mental resistance? Because uh, I would imagine at least at times for some of us who find this kind of weather unpleasant, you'll see uh, with that experience of stickiness and mental resistance, it can feel quite claustrophobic or not good or overwhelming. I think the weather's going to change quite a bit tonight and into tomorrow, so we'll have a cool day tomorrow according to the weather. But it really points to this apparent reality because it's it's different, you know, if if the mind has a different relationship to the sensations of warmth and wetness and stickiness, you know, it's quite literally a different reality and when and with a lot of mental resistance, it's that reality. And it sort of begs the question, how much of this is constructed? Or what can we do about this moment? Some of you maybe sat in on some of the talks in July when I was talking about the five aggregates, maybe even in June, June and July, for the Sunday and Wednesday talks. And I kiddingly said at one of the talks at least, you know, if we did a pop quiz now that we've been on retreat for a number of days and asked, what is this? You know, just sort of see the different answers might come to mind. You know, a superficial answer, not getting a very good grade would be something like, you know, I'm Mark Nunberg and I'm on retreat at Holy Spirit and it's now the seventh night of the retreat and it's hot and sticky, and uh, it's not very pleasant. And that seems like an accurate answer. It certainly has the appearance of truth, that answer, and corresponds with, to some degree, of our consensual reality. But it's not so much in line with the Buddhist teachings. So more in line with the Buddhist teachings would be You know, well, there are sensations. That's what this is. There are sensations and they're being known. And there's mental activity being known. Sometimes this mental activity and this process of sensation and sound and sight, sometimes it's known clearly, sometimes not clearly. Sometimes there's mental resistance associated with the mental and physical activity and sometimes not. So this is a more useful in terms of um, understanding this experience and how stress arises and ceases. This is a more useful way of understanding experience and getting a better grade. Sado Tejaniya says, don't identify with effort. Instead, recognize that whatever that what is doing the work is effort plus whatever other qualities are involved. These qualities are at work, not I. 
And another statement from Saidas, he says, There is a well-known saying in Burma, Meditation is meditating, but you are not meditating. When you begin to practice, <coughs> we think, I am practicing. But later we realize that it is just the mind that is practicing. This is a natural <coughs> progression in the development of awareness. So some of you know in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, I've talked about that in terms of the three stages or the three frequencies of mindfulness. Just keeping the present moment in mind. Use a particular theme to help keep the present moment in mind. Keep it in, keep it in mind steadily enough so that the mind uh, it can relax enough, be less involved with what's coming and going, that it can observe the coming and going of the experience and the developing of steadiness and clarity and the weakening of steadiness and clarity. So in that more um, relaxed place, one, the mind, learns how to be skillful. And then also in the Satipatthana, there's a third frequency of practice, which is that more radical non-involvement. Intimate, but not doing, not fashioning, not constructing. Letting wisdom do the work instead of me trying to be wise with experience. So, the Buddha is saying that we should take these three ways of being mindful and be mindful of the body, be mindful of feeling, be mindful of the mind, and be mindful using these particular maps. And one of these maps is called the five aggregates, or khandas. Here's what the Buddha says. There are many maps in this fourth area of mindfulness. The hindrances, the six sense gates that we've talked about a little bit on retreat, the five physical senses, plus, plus mental activity, the seven factors of awakening, these Wholesome, energizing and tranquilizing factors, three energizing, three tranquilizing, and then mindfulness keeps the set in balance, and the Four Noble Truths. So these are the maps the Buddha suggests that we master, five aggregates being one of them, the five khandas. Furthermore, the practitioner remains contemplating mental qualities in and of themselves, or you could say categories of mental experience in and of themselves with reference to the five clinging aggregates. And how does one remain contemplating on these mental qualities, these mental categories, in and of themselves, with reference to the five clinging aggregates? There is the case where a practitioner discerns, such as form, right, such as the body, or the sensitivities of the body, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, such as form, such as origination, such as disappearance such as feeling tongue, such its origination and disappearance, such as perception, such its origination and disappearance, such are mental formations, its origination and disappearance, and such as consciousness, its origination and disappearance. So the Buddha is giving, up, giving us a, a slightly more subtle look at the body and mind by breaking the the mind up into four categories. And he's 
asking us to look at the interplay of the body and these four aspects of mind. These four aspects of mind are all inclusive, meaning there's no part of the mind outside of them. So there's the feeling tone that arises with every sense contact. There's perception. The mind recognizes each sense contact, even if it's completely unfamiliar. The mind recognizes or perceives, I don't know that. But that is also a perception. There is this general category of mental formations. The most important part of mental formations is this volitional piece. But there's more to this. This is the catch-all category. Anything that's not in the other three that's mine is in mental formations. And the last one is consciousness. And here consciousness is not what we've been calling awareness. Remember, as we use the word awareness in terms of our practice, we're really talking about this whole engine where there's confidence present, there's energy, there's this more technical side of mindfulness that's remembering what's predominant or remembering what the mind is looking at or knowing. There's the steadiness or stillness of that mindfulness, which is concentration. And there's wisdom that is discerning the underlying nature. When these five are working, we call it awareness practice or mindful awareness practice. Or I'm being mindfully aware of the way it is. We're really talking about this whole array of wholesome things working, wholesome qualities working together. The five faculties is that list. But here, consciousness, in terms of the five aggregates, it's just talking about this very specific activity of mind that knows, that illuminates contact. So we have a particular sensitivity and an object that that particular sensitivity is sensitive to, like the eye in a visual object. And together with consciousness, we have sense contact. And as soon as there's sense contact, there's perception and feeling associated with that sense contact. So these four aspects of mind are happening all the time. But it's quite useful to look at the interplay because as you look at the interplay between contact and perception and feeling tone and any volition, like I want to do something about it, I want to ignore this, I want to push this away, I want more of it, or any other mental baggage, dispositional baggage that arises when you have a contact of a sound or even a contact of a thought or a memory. So all of that arises and if we start looking at this present moment, any present moment, with, uh, in some traditions they call it a moment of mind. Right? A moment of mind has all these components. And one moment of mind followed by another moment of mind. Or one moment of the knowing mind knowing, and then another moment of the knowing mind knowing. But for short, we could just say mind. Mind, 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 mind. Like that. And when we break it down, deconstruct it into these categories, it's just easier to begin to get the sense of it as an impersonal natural process. To watch the interplay, to see it playing out. So kanda, or aggregate, you know, it was just a 
common word evidently at the time of the Buddha, according to the scholars, meaning a pile or a bundle or a heap or a mass, or there's some suggestion that it also meant the trunk of a tree. So it's not clear. The Buddha, he did this a lot, you know, because he was conveying something that was out of the ordinary. So he took ordinary words and crafted an extraordinary or specific spiritual meaning or meaning in terms of one's experience. And so he took an ordinary word for heap, which has a sort of impersonal flavor to it. He could have meant that he could have taken it because it also referred to a trunk of a tree, and then it could be thought of as fuel for clinging. So either impersonal stuff, like the stuff of body sensitivity, or the stuff of perceiving, or the stuff of con- of uh, feeling tone, or mental formations of consciousness, see it as just the impersonal heap that this unwholesome process of clinging uses. So either it's fuel for the fire, which is a common metaphor the Buddha used for clinging, is the burning of a fire. And the fire needs fuel. But the fuel is different than the fire. The fuel is just fuel. Like there's nothing inherently destructive about a log or cow dung or any other fuel for a fire. But, you know, with the right supporting causes, you get a fire going and there can be a lot of destruction. Clinging can be destructive. Certainly, it, it's stressful. And the Buddha almost always used the phrase clinging khandas or clinging aggregates. The five clinging aggregates or in terms of describing or defining Nibbana, freedom, it's almost always in terms of uh, no longer clinging to the aggregates, not clinging to the aggregates. He did say the aggregates disappear, but there's no clinging to the aggregates. And this is, you know, it's always tricky because people wonder about what the unconditioned is. Is it a different place, a different reality? Well, I don't know. But it seems to me that the answer is is sort of both yes and no. That in some ways, uh, we don't know the reality of mind, a moment of mind, without clinging. We know a moment of mind, contact with sense experience, with clinging. Well, what's that experience without clinging whatsoever? Or maybe we do know, but we haven't maybe clearly recognized or understood it. So the five aggregates are the basic categories of mind and body experience that the mind tends to cling to. And this is, Buddha talked about this right in his first talk. He coined this term. He took an ordinary word for heap and he talked about the heaps of experience or the categories, the heaps of categories of experience that this process called dukkha clings to or the clinging creates the experience of dukkha. So this is right at the, in that first talk that 
setting the wheel of Dhamma and motion talk. Now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stress. Aging is stress. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the wanted, uh, with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And so these aggregates, they're not really here to tell us who we are. Oh, we're these five aggregates that we cling to. It was more a model to describe the experience of suffering or the experience of stress and the release from stress. And you'll see this over and over again. I mean, the Buddha had to say some stuff about self because it relates to understanding the experience of suffering and the release from suffering. But his purpose wasn't to define what or what is not the self. It was really to illuminate the causes for suffering and the release from suffering. He said, formally and also now, I make known just suffering and the cessation of suffering. That was a statement, some kind, in that fashion that he made many, many times. So then in this way, in the, in the suttas, in all the discourses, and I think there are over 159 talks where the Buddha mentions the five aggregates. Remember, for short, it's just mind and body. As the all of experience, right? It's just this mind and body being known, moment by moment by moment. And in this description of the five aggregates, the knowing is part of these five things. So this is the, the interplay of this is each moment of mind-body experience. And he, in almost in all of these, he's talking about the aggregates, the five aggregates of clinging as being burdensome. He's not, it sounds like maybe the world is burdensome, but it's clinging to the world, to the mind and body that is burdensome. So here's a, a typical way of the Buddha talking about this. He says, practitioners, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. Listen and pay close attention, I will speak. As you say, venerable sir, the monks responded. The blessed one said, and which is the burden? The five clinging aggregates, it should be said. Which five? Form as a clinging aggregate, feeling as a clinging aggregate, perception as a clinging aggregate, mental formations as a clinging aggregate. Ajahn Tanisaro uses the translation fabrications instead of mental formations. The ways the mind fabricates, literally constructs, you know, from our dispositions and other mental processes we construct meaning and consciousness as a clinging aggregate. This practitioners is called the burden. And which is the carrier of the burden? The person, it should be said, this person with such a name, such a clan name, 
This is called the carrier of the burden. <coughs> and which is the taking up of the burden? The craving that makes for further becoming. Right? So now he's talking about the clinging that's actually the problem. Accompanied by passion and delight. Somebody who's going to get something. Right? That's what the passion and delight. Relishing now here, now there. For example, craving for sensual pleasures. Craving for becoming. Craving for non-becoming. This is called the taking up of the burden. So then it's pretty clear what the casting off of the burden is, right? He says, the remainderless dispassion, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very same craving. This is called the casting off of the burden. And see how the Buddha kind of really pounds it in. The remainderless, this passion cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release and letting go of that very craving. It's nice to hear these kind of teachings. It makes it simple. You know how it is on retreat, at least in moments. It seems big and vast, this entanglement we're in the middle of. Because we have, hopefully by now, in moments, a sense that we're entangled, right? That, and, and part of that entanglement is our attempts to disentangle, to be free of any kind of mental stress or mental burden, uh, tend to is, exasperate the problem. It gets more tight as we try to get out of the tension, to get rid of the tension. So it's really, it is problematic in that way. So to hear it talked about so simply that there's a person who takes up the burden. How? By craving sense pleasures, by craving becoming, and craving non-becoming. Thinking there is some personal end through sense experience, through becoming somebody or not becoming somebody, ending something, being done with something. And this should sound, if it doesn't sound familiar, you just need to do the translation because this is very commonplace experience for us. Just like uh, feeling some stiffness in the body and just thinking it's like going to be so wonderful for me when I stretch out my limb or when I... But how... How meaningful is it? You're stretching your limb. <laughs> well, how meaningful is it? <laughs> right now, pretty good, huh? <laughs> you know, and how many times today have we thought about becoming something? Whether becoming somebody on retreat or in the future. And just imagine if we would were to add up all the different moments of mind where we had some becoming story or ending story, being done with story. That's over with now. It's behind me. It's gone. And this idea that then I would be done, finally, or oh, I would have, finally, 
I would become that. So it always feels like a personally meaningful, these things. Having breakfast, you know, our next meal. Like, that's personally meaningful. I'm not saying it isn't something, but where is the, you know, if it is really personally something, then I should personally have accumulated all of those breakfast experiences as some kind of goal that I have now, because it always feels like it's going to be personally significant in a meaningful, lasting way. Now, I know we don't intellectually think that, but that's how we act, you know, when we lean forward into becoming, into not becoming, into some sense experience. So, just because it bears repeating, the remainderless dispassion, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, letting go of that very craving. This is called the casting off of the burden. And I bet everybody in this room has had experiences of, with mindfulness, seeing, craving, active in the mind. And if the, when the mindfulness is steady enough, with enough wisdom, then seeing the craving is the cause for the letting go of craving. And then there was craving, now there's no craving. And we directly experience the putting down of the burden. So in this sense, we have tastes of Nibbāna. We just tend to immediately pick up burden, like being the one who put down the burden. Being the one who doesn't want to pick up burdens anymore. Or many other, you know, different, different ways that, you know, it is the habit of mind. So there's, well, it just seems like that's what you just said. It's like whatever insight we have, if it doesn't, um, in a sense, really shed some light on on self in that aspect of desire, it it's gonna we'll be really frustrated with it. You know, it won't really deliver in any kind of a way. Yeah, that's just, right. Because, Casey said, unless it, uh, unless something is revealed about the underlying nature of self, we'll be really frustrated. Because it will just be a moment of putting down the burden, but that will feel, that will look like a self-activity. So we'll miss the point. Because it's not just about putting down craving, it's about uh, understanding the underlying causes for stress. That's what needs to be seen. And that's the next sutta I was going to read. The Buddha is making exactly this point. There is no suffering without a sense of self, without constructing or a sense of self or selfing. So the Buddha says, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person who has no regard for noble ones, those with wisdom, is not well-versed or disciplined in their teaching, who has no regard for people of integrity, sort of good ethical conduct, is not well-versed and disciplined in their teachings, assumes form to be self, or the self as possessing form, 
or the form as in the self, or the self as in the form. So there, this is the interesting thing. We're not consistent on how we personalize the experience of the body. Sometimes we assume that the form uh, and self, the body and self are the same. I am this body. Sometimes we assume the self owns the body. This is my body. Sometimes the form is in the self. Right? So there's the self and the form is included in it. Or the self is in the form. Like somehow I'm inside the body somewhere. The essential me. And this inconsistency should be giving away the constructed nature because it's the sense of self is constructed in so many different ways. And not just with the body. The Buddha repeats the same teaching with all the five aggregates. One assumes feeling to be self or the self as possessing feeling or feeling as in the self or the self as in feeling. Same with perception, same with mental formations, same with consciousness. And this is what Ajahn Tanisaro says in one of his articles about these five aggregates. I think this is very interesting. He says, this sense of me and mine is rarely static. Right? That's what I was saying. The sense of me, it has to be a dynamic because it's not enough to construct the sense of self once. It has to be constructed continuously. <coughs> so it's a pervasive, persistent mental activity. <coughs> so Ajahn Tani Saro says, it roams like an amoeba, changing its contours as it changes locations. Sometimes the self is associated with a particular feeling, like some unpleasantness. That's how the sense of self has identity. Sometimes it's associated with seeing a beautiful sight, or having a sublime thought, or a despicable thought. So the sense of self floats around all over the place. It isn't consistent. That would be a useful exercise when you have some real calm, so you don't end up thinking a lot. But just track moment, you know, as many moments in a row as you can, the different way the self appears. How this moment appears personal in this way. Now this moment appears personal in this way. And now this moment appears, appears personal in this way. And you'll see there's very little consistency of the sense of self except the dukkha of it. That's that's actually the deluding piece because each moment of selfing, identifying, getting attached, squeezes the heart. We assume consistency, like, yeah, it's me again, because there's that same squeeze. It's personally meaningful. It's personally meaningful. So the squeeze is the same, but the way that's that squeeze or the way that that the sort of uh, wrapping Decoration around that squeeze, of course, is changing moment to moment. It roams like an amoeba, changing its contours as it changes locations. Sometimes expansive, sometimes contracted. It can view itself as identical with the kanda, an object of mind and body, as possessing a kanda, an aggregate, as existing within a kanda, or as having a kanda existing within itself. So that's just what the Buddha had said. At times feeling finite, at other times infinite. 
So even when we're doing the loving-kindness practice and we have a very expansive mind, it will appear, it won't stand out because this kind of selfing is associated with something very pleasant and wholesome. That it will appear, if you look carefully, that the self is this radiant, all-encompassing love. I am the one who loves unconditionally. Now, in the great, you know, spectrum of selves to be identified with, that's a pretty good self to be identified with. But it's still limiting. And it still will change. Whatever shape it takes, it's always unstable and insecure. For the khandas, the aggregates, um, providing its food are simply activities and function inconstant and insubstantial. In other words, right, these are the activities of the mind and body, their activity. In other words, oh, I'm sorry, in the words of the canon, the Buddhist teachings, all the aggregates are like foam, like a mirage, like the bubble formed when rain falls on water. They are heavy only because the iron grip of trying to cling to them is burdensome. As long as we're addicted to passion and delight for these activities of body and mind, as long as we cling to them, we're bound to suffer. That's from Ajahn Tanisaro. first self of wanting? I mean, does wanting form around sense of self, or does sense of self form around wanting? I mean, how would... I, I, maybe the question doesn't matter, or an answer doesn't matter, because they're both just feeding each other in a sense, and that... Yeah, I think that's the answer, but... Skillful. Because it's... This is... You're asking the question that the Buddha answers with dependent origination. So, and, and it is a relevant question. Because to have confidence in this reflection, this seeing things as impersonal processes, natural processes, the, the intellectual mind, the cognitive process, it wants a story to replace the story, no, no, this is me doing this, me having this. And that story is dependent origination. And so in a way there's a beginning, but the, the, this is a cycle, you know. So there's ignorance, the, the not understanding. And this is sort of what's left over from suffering. Suffering, being attached to things, and then because we can't, the things we're attached to change, we suffer, there's stress, it confuses the mind. So that suffering, that comes before the ignorance, leads to ignorance. And then with ignorance, you get mind and body, basically. And with mind and body, you're sensitive, and you have sense contact. With sense contact, there's feeling. With feeling, and not enough wisdom, we either like it, or don't like it, or ignore it, which sets emotion craving. When there's that craving to do something, to become somebody, to get rid of something, when we have that craving, then we start to act on it. That's the grasping or clinging. 
And then we become, so the next one, the next step is becoming. We become the one who did something. And then that, once you become something, you're going to change. And then that's birth and death, suffering, ignorance. The residue of suffering is ignorance. The mind is confused by it because it doesn't understand. How did I get burnt? How did I end up getting burnt? You know, I was just trying to take care of myself, but I got burnt. Let me try that again. And that's samsara and the cycles. So the the self is taking the suffering personally and then taking the ignorance personally. But like there's something to do about it. So we have to break the the cycle somewhere. And basically breaking the cycle of dependent origination is realizing the dukkha of the cycle. Anywhere along the line, I mean, the place that's normally talked about is in terms of feeling tone. Because the unpleasantness, if we just change our relationship to the feeling in any moment, that breaks the cycle. If we're willing to just feel whatever we're feeling without personalizing it, then the cycle breaks. It's not being fed. But it's going back to what the conversation a few moments ago. It's not enough to do that breaking once. When we break the cycle, because all of us have done this. We've had a feeling tone and we didn't take the bait. I mean, if we always took the bait every time we got a feeling tone, we'd be in jail or dead, right? Because we get a feeling tone a lot. We see things we like or things that we don't like and we want to destroy them or get rid of them. But we don't always do that because, you know, we kind of understand, well, I can, I can live with this. Given the consequences of acting on this, I'll live with this feeling. I'll accept it. But we can do that in a much more profound way. But it's not enough just to do that once or even many times. We have to understand the whole cycle and why what just happened. Why relating to feeling, relating to dukkha in a different way changes everything. Because it's the not understanding dukkha that is the cause for suffering. That's exactly what the Buddha said. It is the not understanding dukkha that is the cause for dukkha. The not seeing it for what it is. This hurts. This is unpleasant. But it's just unpleasantness being known. It's just a moment of mind. The knowing mind, knowing unpleasantness. And if we can let it be that natural process, instead of personalizing it and then acting on it, We'll get some freedom. And if we can understand that, then the mind generalizes this one moment of seeing feeling and not acting on it. And it generalizes it. This is what insight does. It generalizes what it just understood. So then that understanding arises more frequently with more strength. And then you would imagine full awakening is when that insight is so has so much momentum, arises in each moment of contact with full strength so that there's no more slipping back into misunderstanding the world of sense contact and acting in, acting upon it in ways that lead to stress. So this suffering is happening in the mental activity if we look at the time mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. Sure. So every time that's where we create it. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah, selfing or whatever clinging has to happen in every moment for there to be dukkha. In mindfulness, like if you're in an awareness, for example, if you're watching what's happening, it's an automatic thing that you won't be able to catch your story or whatever, my story, you know, unfolding. If, if we truly catch it. Well, the, see, this is the point, though. What you really need to do is catch it a number of times really, really well because the way insight works or the way the mind works, it's there aren't any boundaries. So when the mind really understands something, it changes the whole mind. It gets generalized. So then you don't, the catching it in every moment will just be what the mind does. You won't have to catch it in every moment. But you and I as practitioners, we need to catch it initially really well, really see, really be there in that moment and see it from the beginning to the end, the, you know, the sensitivity, the contact, the feeling tone, the craving, seeing the possibility of craving into grasping, seeing the danger in it. You know, all of that happening in one, I mean, it's just, much less than a second, just an instant of recognizing and the dropping. In the same way we drop a hot pan, like, oh, I don't need to do anything with this. And then having that insight many, many times gets generalized. And then, um, yeah, I'll just keep it there. So this doesn't happen, of course, because we have this superficiality of attention. We're just not paying attention closely enough, partly because of samadhi, but partly the mind is distracted or superficial because we don't think it matters. So it sort of gets fed two ways. It's like we don't know how much it matters because we're not paying attention, and because we don't think it matters that we pay attention, it doesn't seem to matter, you know, because we're not, you know, we don't, we don't assume that the danger is in not paying attention or that the cause for our suffering. If we did, I mean, imagine, think about what we do to protect ourselves. Human beings figured out how to build nuclear bombs, you know, let alone all the amazing other things that have been created to make them feel safe, to make us feel safe. We're the ones who did it, <laughs> Right? I mean, it's amazing what we can do when we feel insecure. But it's you see how misguided it is. It's like we've created something that hasn't made us more secure. <laughs> if you've watched, uh, there's a new program that John Oliver has that's on YouTube because it's on HBO. But they, because it's new, they're putting it on, on uh, HBO, and it is the the clearest form of satire I've ever seen. It's really riveting. And he did one takedown of uh, the uh, places in the United States where we have our nuclear arsenal and about how incompetent <laughs> this these institutions are. And it is funny and frightening, you know, what we have set in motion 
And now, because you know, now it's like, who, who thinks about nuclear weapons these days? We don't. I mean, there's many other things. I'm not trying to scare anybody. <laughs> there's plenty to be afraid of so much that it doesn't help. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's just like one of these things that, um, it's so easy to assume it's okay not to pay attention. Yeah, somebody else is paying attention, or I'm sure they're on top of what they're doing. <laughs> Catch it, YouTube. I always wonder with that show, just to continue the diversion, like how many completely insane things are there in the world before he runs out of material? And I, I, it would be very interesting because it's like every week it's so amazing what he digs into. And he just does a 20-minute or so spiel about one topic and just illuminating the truth that we tend not to see behind that one topic. And uh, I know, but that's just amazing. <laughs> okay, back to the talk. So this uh, shift from superficial attention to more careful, continuous attention, motivate, motivated by some vega, we talked about last night, that spiritual urgency, but not just some vega, because otherwise we'll fall into despair. So both some vega, there is real danger in not paying attention, and the other half which is the sense of possibility. I'm forgetting the Pali word. I think it might be Pasada. Um, the sense of possibility of freedom, the possibility of full release, wisdom and compassion. So the combination of these two things draws the mind into the present moment, makes the mind more interested, willing to start again, willing to be continuous. This is the ongoing investigation. And it's this, it causes this turning over. The way it's described, and the Buddha used this sort of phrase many times in his talks. Turning, well actually, it's used by the people having just heard the Buddha's talk. So the monks, the nuns, the lay people would then, after he's finished talking, would say something like, it's as if turning upright would have been overthrown, revealing what was hidden showing the way to one who was lost, holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyes to see. And Sayadaw Utejaniya says that with insight, it's always shocking. The mind is always surprised by what arises, even if it's something you were told to expect as you've been studying the teachings. When the mind directly experiences it, it's surprising to the mind. I remember, uh, even as a child, some of you might have heard this story, but I don't remember how old, but maybe like six or seven. And, uh, you know, kind of early elementary years. And taking a bath, which, you know, was sort of a relaxing thing. I was the middle of seven kids, so I got the water before it was really dirty. Actually, because the older people in my family were a lot older. I often was one of the first, and then the three younger kids after me. And uh, so anyway, just sitting in the tub, 
and I, I started to notice the shift. I didn't understand it, you know, I didn't know what it was, but it was just a shift in consciousness that would happen. I was sort of in my normal conceptual, conceptual world, thinking about this, thinking about that. And then, because, you know, bathtub is sort of a relaxing place, you know, just leaning back. And I'd notice, you now for me, it was like a, a visual shift, but it was a whole perceptual shift. Everything shifted, but nothing changed. But perception knew that something had completely shifted. And it was like, and I started, I, I got to the point where I could go back and forth. And I was very, my mind was very curious, but I had no model to sort of understand what had happened. But it was just this shift from a conceptual way to, if not a completely non-conceptual way, just the mind relatively free of concepts. So seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, touching is just touching. And uh, and the mind was completely convinced that something had shifted, but couldn't figure out what it was. And it was very interesting. And this is a little bit like the model. This is why the Buddha is teaching us this mind-body model, or the five aggregates. He's setting up this shift from what we take this to be. This is me, you know. I'm having a feeling. I'm having a thought. I'm going to do this. We're completely identified with these the process of volition, which is, again, mental formation, the process of perception, the process of tactile experience or sight or sound. We get identified with the pleasantness and unpleasantness and the ideas and the proliferation we have around this. But it can shift. Another example I've noticed is, uh, you know, imagine a world where, as a culture, we're entranced by screens. I'd notice, like, when I look out my back door, the screen door, you know, you can get really interested in the screen and the bugs that have gotten squashed in the screen and the paint, you know, if you paint too close to the screen and the paint never goes away, it just fills in the space and maybe some rust, and we have a cat that scratches, gets in by jumping up on the screen. That's how we know she wants to come in to the holes. And and it's like it's whole. It's a whole world there. The mind can be completely transfixed on the screen. And we could spend lifetimes, and we could talk about screens, your screen, my screen, who's got the better screen, you know, the way the screen used to be and now it's so old or someday I'm going to get a new screen. It could be our whole world until someday a guy named the Buddha comes and says, hey, just relax your gaze a little bit, you know. And you, you realize there's a backyard. I mean, you wouldn't even have a word for it. But there's this whole thing that the mind had been missing. It was always there. And the only reason the mind didn't know it because it thought this was what it was all about. It was completely fixated, identified, attached, proliferating around the screen. And there are many, many examples of these things in our lives. I like to, to tell the funny one, most of you have heard me mention this from Annie Hall. It's just such a classic scene with Woody Allen walking up and down 
in the bedroom, back and forth in the bedroom, speculating about whether there was a second shooter in the JFK assassination, you know, and just kind of running through the different theories. And Annie Hall, his wife at the time, looks at him and says, I think you're just trying to avoid our relationship. And uh, he looks at the camera and goes, I think she's right. <laughs> so how many obsessions do we have in life? We can be obsessed about ticks, the whole retreat, or what's going to be the next meal, or where do I get a cushion like that, or... And <laughs> I, I think you, you or Sandy get the prize for the highest cushion. Oh, no, not Sandy. I'm sorry, Mimi. So we can get obsessed and uh, lost in anything. And it's really, it's really that simple about that relaxing. Because the only thing that needs to be done is the releasing of clinging, of reacting to feeling, reacting to sense contact. Because that's what distorts the clarity, the perceptual process. So if we can just stop the little and big ways the mind is proliferating, obsessing, which is exactly the training we do. We're cultivating a continuity of mindful awareness, a very simple, relaxed, and because it's simple and relaxed, clear, and the difficult part is, continuous awareness and everything takes care of itself. It really does. But that's no small task, as we all know, especially the continuity piece. And at this point in the retreat, if you've had, felt like you've learned a lot in the retreat, you might notice quite naturally, because what else would it be but a natural process, a kind of sorrow or lamentation about these favorable conditions won't remain forever. And I'll be back in the world of news and this and that that is like thinking it's so important to obsess about the screen. And within that obsession, it seems completely rational to obsess about the screen. And of course, these concepts we have, you know, the ideas we have, they do have the appearance of being solid. That's the very nature of concept. The concept of me as a concept is really the same concept I had all along. Because like I mentioned earlier, the concept is mostly defined by the squeeze in the heart, the tension. And concepts we really care about, they've got a big squeeze. Concepts we don't scare, uh, don't care about, there's not much squeeze to the heart. And that's really how we, as a self, how we move through the world. You know, we're, we're basically reading everything according to the squeeze we get from contact with it. And we hold tight to things that, or, or are afraid of things that have a big squeeze. Like, uh, I've people 
who think and laugh at people who think that's important, whereas we're not squeezed by that, so we know that's not important, so then we judge those people who... Yeah, yeah. So the whole world of judgment and comparing and hierarchy is all about squeezes on the heart. Yeah. That brings the body into it because squeezing is a physical thing. So it makes me wonder if there's a way to jump cut some of it to just teach the body or have the body learn to let go so that instead of kind of intellectualizing the whole action of the Buddha, it's a physical it's a physical knowledge that you get working. But, but don't but don't make one better than the other. It's really uh, this the interplay of body and mind, and uh, it's always going to be the mind knowing the body. So you don't really have body without mind, right? So it's just better to talk about it as this interplay. And when we break it down into mind, body, or the five aggregates, it's just a way to be more intimate with this mind body thing, or this life here that we have. But, Well, you know what the mind is because you're living the mind. Well, yeah, but 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 isn't it? I mean, there's a brain, and that's different than mind, but it's related. I mean, it, it, yeah, but for body, remember, we're not talking about concepts when we're talking about body. We're not talking about brain or nervous system or respiratory system. We're talking about, when we're talking about body, we're talking about the sensitivity to visual form, the sensitivity to touch, the sensitivity to sound, taste, and smell. Did I miss one? So that's what we mean by body. So we're really talking, this is important, we're only talking about subjective experience. We're not talking about the reality, because it's not relevant. Philosophers find it relevant. You might find it relevant, but in terms of the experience of dukkha, the Buddha says, and you might agree, that it's not important absolutely what this is. What's important is our subjective experience because that's where dukkha is. Dukkha, stress, is a subjective experience that we are interested in the freedom from. So that's where we pay attention. That's where we dig in. And that's the difference between Western psychology generally and Buddha Dharma is that mostly Western, now it's changing. It's actually being affected by the Buddhist teachings. But traditionally or historically, you know, Western psychology was this uh, trying to understand the mind as an objective thing. What is the mind out there? But we're not doing that. We're understanding the experience of this. If you don't like calling it mind, that's fine, but it's this. And and we don't really know what happens upon death, whether the mind, whatever that is, whether something continues or not. But um, I think it might be skillful to keep an open mind. Well, I don't think, I, I mean, I do think it's skillful to keep an open mind 
about that, not to assume a materialistic view. I really see the materialistic view as the predominant religion in our culture. And one of the ways you know something's a predominant religion is when it's so assumed that people don't see it as a religion. It's like, this is our religion. We don't identify. And then there's all the other ones out there. But this materialist view is a view. I'm not saying whether it's absolutely true or not, but it's absolutely a view. And whether it's fundamentally true or not, we may never know. But what's important is it's skillful to look at the mind or this experience from this subjective night. Don't have a problem that it's a subjective point of view. That's what we're talking about. And that really uh, it helps us from getting caught up in the, what the Buddha calls the um, thicket of views. <laughs> you know, about what this is in an absolute sense. Anyway, it's 8.30, so we should leave it here. I'll just end with a quote from Saida Utejaniya. He says, We don't complain about what is happening. Everything is experience. Whatever is happening is happening through cause and effect. They do their job. We do our job. What should we do? We just recognize what is happening. Everything is nature. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. just appreciating this as a subjective experience. This is our responsibility. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.